Folks, if you're liking what you're getting from 30MPC, the number one way you can support us is by subscribing to our newsletter. Every week, you only get two emails. On Monday, you get a content roll-up of everything that dropped last week. And on Fridays, I pick one topic and I personally write a deep dive on things like how to cold call, how to run a discovery call, or even how to hire an AE. So if you're liking what you're getting here, take two seconds, go to the show notes. You'll see a button to subscribe to our newsletter, or you can go to 30mpc.com backslash newsletter and do it there. We'll catch you soon. Cheers. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this episode of 30 Minutes to President's Club. My name is Armand Farouk, and I'm here with my co-host, Nick Sigelski. And today, if you talk about someone who has earned their stripes, we have someone who was a top rep at MongoDB pre-IPO, ran the top team worldwide post-IPO, and then was a founding member of Unusual Ventures, where he was a 15-plus time interim VP of sales, and now he's at the one and only renowned Kleiner Perkins. Nick, it's Liam Mulcahy. Why should people listen? Well, if you want to earn your stripes and are sitting there looking at a big territory that now it's time to prospect and work some deals and maybe even try to hit your quota, it's helpful to plan your attack and then attack your plan. And Liam has some concrete advice related to how you might think about stack ranking your prospecting, choosing the accounts you're going after, and then how to de-risk your deals at some of your top accounts. A three, a two, a one. And wait, if you want to do that yourself, yes, if you want a territory plan, Liam actually was the first guest to send us his own territory planning sheet after the episode. And we've actually linked to that in the show notes. We'll remind you again at the end of the episode, but if you like what you heard today, definitely go and download that. The link is in the show notes. Three, two, one. It's time. Today's tip to optimize your sales day is brought to you by Boomerang. If you get an email and the action required on that email is going to take you less than two minutes to do, do it on the spot. It's not worth adding it to your to-do list, having to look at the item, remember what you need to do. That's going to take you more than two minutes anyway. So do it on the spot, get it off your plate. Now we documented our best templates and tips to help you optimize your sales day with our friends at Boomerang. And you can get that documentation for free at the link in the show notes. Today's deal acceleration cheat code is brought to you by Pipedrive, which is a CRM built by sellers for sellers. The best way to drive your pipeline forward is to every single day, pull up a list of all of your open opportunities and look at each opportunity by stage and think, what can I do today that will increase my likelihood of winning this deal? That's how you keep your ops moving forward in between meetings that you have on the calendar. Now we documented five cheat codes that can help you cut your sales cycle in half with Pipedrive. There's a link in the show notes to steal them. Otter AI's Otter Pilot for Sales gives you the freedom to sell on your discovery calls by taking notes for you. One of the best ways to deepen your discovery is to ask your prospect about the impetus behind their goals. So when a prospect tells me they want to advertise on more sales podcasts, I'll say, well, it's not every day that you wake up and decide you want to sponsor a podcast. What's causing you to even explore this in the first place? Now, we put together the ultimate discovery checklist with our friends at Otter AI, which you can get for free at the link in the show notes.
Today's tip to optimize your sales day is brought to you by Boomerang. Obsessive checking of your inbox is a total waste of time and brain power. Instead, commit to checking your inbox and responding to email at set times throughout the day. I'm a fan of Boomerang's pause inbox function to keep myself from getting distracted by my inbox. Now, we documented our best templates and tools to help you optimize your sales day with our friends at Boomerang, and you can get that for free at the link in the show notes. This week's actionable prospecting tactic is from Sixth Sense, who shows you the prospects who are most likely to buy so you can get more meetings with fewer activities. Personalizing cold emails requires you to only change the first paragraph in a trigger template. All you have to do is tie the research to the problem you solve in paragraph one, and then switch that out while you leave paragraphs two and three, your solution and call to action, exactly the same. And so we are giving you six of these trigger templates with our partners at Sixth Sense. The link is in the show notes. All right, Liam, welcome to the show. We start every single episode with your top three actionable takeaways. So let's get your three. All right. Takeaway number one, if you're prospecting into a company and you can't simply explain what they do or how they make money, you are not ready to sell into that company. Let me explain why. Great deals and great accounts are closed with an underpinning of value. Really communicating how the value of your product is going to be able to impact some sort of a business driver at that company and for that team and that individual. And if you don't understand what they do, even at a very simplistic level, there's no way you're going to be able to have a value-based communication, right? And this usually leaves reps transacting, which is not necessarily the worst thing in the world. But if you're doing transactional deals, they're typically smaller. They typically have a higher churn profile. And they typically are going to cause you and your CS team potentially more of a headache down the line. So if you can at least take the upfront effort to understand what companies do, how they make money, and how you can impact that, you're going to close better deals that are typically bigger that grow with you over time. So an example of what a great rep would do for that is understanding what does their business do? How do they make money? How are they doing in their industry? What do you think their use case is? What is the typical current state pain points we would solve for that use case? You can do all of that before you ever talk to anybody at an account. Beautiful. What's number two? Number two is you should take a page out of athletes' playbooks and visualize your entire year. There's an adage I really like that I think is applicable to a lot of salespeople where if you don't tell your time where to go, you're going to wonder where it went. And I think if you just approach every quarter or every year with a 90 or 100-day mindset, you get stuck on that hamster wheel of frenetically trying to close deals and then frenetically trying to build pipeline, right? And you just undulate. Instead, especially this time of year now, if you take a couple weeks and just plan how you're going to go through the year, what deals you're going to try to close that you already have contact with, and then who you need to prospect into and then try to plot those companies on a timeline throughout the year, you can at least come up with a hypothesis per company and have an idea of where you want to spend your time aligning it with where there should be a propensity to buy as opposed to just taking every 90 days a chunk at a time and then doing it all over again. Beautiful. Round us out, Liam. What's number three? Number three, and this is a big one, is you need to start betting your deals on people and not your product. Now, I don't mean to say like products are not going to be able to get deals inside of companies. That's obviously what happens every day in the world. But great deals are done because you have a true champion on the other end of the line, or you have somebody that's fighting to advocate for your product in that company. And I think too often now, reps are diving right into the features and functionality, and they're just pitching different aspects of the product, hoping that's going to get it across the line when great deals get done by actually having somebody who's going to talk to you around the business implications of your solution, helping them with the workflow that helps them with some sort of value driver, right? De-risking, making money, quicker time to market. So focus on champions and less about technical wins. 
So Liam, it's the beginning of the year. This is a rather timely episode. And your VP of sales comes to you and they say, Nick, here's your territory. Here are your 100, 200, 300 accounts, depending on how big of a sales cycle you have, right? Let's say you're looking at those 200 accounts. You talked about first coming up with a framework that allows you to identify propensity to buy in that territory. Can you walk me through, you get those 200 accounts. How do you prioritize or stack rank which ones you spend the most time on? Yeah, that's a great question. So let's assume I'm a new rep at the company too. Make it as like clean slate as you can. The first thing I would do is understand like what companies buy from us now and how many of those companies look like the ones that I have in my patch. You could start at a very high level doing that by verticals. Do we do better with SaaS companies, gaming companies, fintech companies, finance, like traditional finance. And then you can start to break that down by use cases, right? Think about, okay, our product here has a unique set of differentiation. And what do we solve with that differentiation? Then you start getting into use cases. And then you start aligning those use cases to companies by vertical, company size, stage. So you could do that for all 200. So what it sounds like to me, Liam, is you are making a preliminary hypothesis on the reason that somebody would buy your thing or even engage with you in the first place. And my suspicion is that that hypothesis gets weaved into your prospecting. And so now that we've carved up the territory, I understand how I'm going to prioritize my time. I know what I'm going to do and how, like, how does that impact my prospecting? What happens next? Yeah. One way to think about this is let's say you're breaking it out by use case and you've got four use cases. So like just envision a Google sheet where the furthest left-hand column, you've got four rows and each row is a use case. I would break out the 200 companies into those, right? And then in those 200 companies, I would think very specifically about like, how would I customize this to that type of a business? And that could be the next column, right? Whether it's a gaming company, a SaaS company, a logistics company, et cetera, it's going to sound a little bit different how I would communicate our value and my discovery questions. The next set of rows gets really into the meat of prospecting, whereas I'm going to go find people that I should resonate with. What's the title? Who is their boss? What's a day in their life typically like? What other ancillary products would they be using in the workflow that my product's going to slot into? And then I would try to find those people on LinkedIn. I'd usually find like five to eight people per account roughly, where it's like potential champion, potential buyer, potential blocker, which is one that I think people don't look for enough. And then also potential enablers. So what I mean by enabler is like, I know if I sell this solution, I'm selling into, you know, if I'm selling into a sales leader, for example, I may need to have a DevOps engineer install my product into their cloud environment because that person doesn't have the keys. So those enablers become critical for sales cycles. But now as I'm going through, I basically am creating a hypothesis per company, per use case and per person before I do any outreach. So then when I'm actually in those discovery conversations, it's very organic for me to bring up questions about their business because I've already done all this homework. And then I'm weaving my discovery questions in through that. And prospects feel that effort. Like you can't fake it. (laughs) If you really understand what's recent news, recent hires, how their business is performing, acquisitions, expanding internationally. And I used to do this at MongoDB and my friends, if they ever listen to this, are going to remember making fun of me for it justifiably. Like I remember making a big deck of flashcards before every QBR They would say like, all right, Liam, you're forecasting a deal with Envision. Tell me about it. The first thing I would do is I would explain how Envision makes money. And then I would just talk about like their market. And then I would talk about the people that I'm betting on. And then I would talk about why MongoDB made sense for that company. And like why NoSQL was a better idea. Most reps do the inverse. They start immediately at the features. And they're like, well, we have a technical champion here. And we think that the NoSQL is going to be better for their blah, blah, blah. 
but they usually lose the deal because they're not communicating from a stance of value and they didn't have any true champions. So I used to just try to inverse that and then spent my entire year just testing those hypotheses through prospecting batches of companies at a time. Well, what's interesting about what you're doing is because you understand how they make money, you actually sort of understand the business, you've done some prep, you go on the call and you're demonstrating that you invoke sort of the rule of reciprocity, but like, all right, this guy's clearly done some work here. You're not going to run into the no effort buyer on the discovery call where you get a bunch of one word answers because they're like, okay, this person's put some work in. I'm at least going to reciprocate with playing ball with them. You've mentioned this thing about sort of the people making the sale. And you've talked a little bit about the champion. You've alluded to the champion, but you said something interesting earlier about you're trying to identify blockers early. And can you tell me about how that incorporates like, okay, so you prospect someone who's a potential champion, but you know who the blockers might be. How are you using that pre-identification of the people who might blow up your deal to help you not have your deal get blown up? Yeah, I think taking a stance of positive pessimism in sales is very important. And you almost want to try to disqualify deals as early as possible. And if they make it through that filter, then they're qualified, right? As opposed to happier syndrome, just trying to assume any good conversation equals qualification, right? So what I'll try to do is I will go through LinkedIn and in a detailed way on like Sam selling to a security engineering team. If I can go find something where somebody's either called out a competitive product or maybe they have like a LinkedIn and there's only two connections and they have no photo, I'm like, this person's probably a block. Like I'm, I'm going to take a wild guess here and, under, and guess that this woman or man is going to be like a blocker to the sale. And then I get in touch with somebody on their team. I'll just start to ask, because I've, again, I've already done this research, where I'm like, hey, this conversation went well. It sounds like we should probably get your team on the line if they're going to be using this as a system of record. But I'm curious, like, would anybody want to not go this route? Do you think anybody has a vested interest into just using your current solution or the thing you built internally and would hate this idea? So you're trying to pull it out of them always. And then if they're like, well, you know, there's a guy on my team that probably would want to just use the homegrown solution. I may just say like, oh, is that Chris? And just call it out because I'm already done the homework there, right? So you can try to identify them beforehand. It could be a little bit hard, but it's always worth the effort. And then during the calls too, if you find that somebody is not going anywhere, that you're just getting relegated to like really detailed feature conversations, nothing about the business or value or anything like that. Just trying to understand like what would be the reasoning for them to never do this. Capture that information, juice them for as much information as you can. And then when you do find somebody who could be a potential champion, bring that up immediately. <laughs> like again, like you almost using that as like a piece of evidence as to why this deal may never happen and get it out as early as possible. Like, hey, I know it sounds like Nick, you and I are in agreement on this. But for what it's worth, I caught up with Armand last month and he completely doesn't see the value in our solution. How involved is he going to be in this process, if at all? Like, so you're always trying to go find these landmines before you step on it the last day of the quarter when you've got a deal and commit and then all of a sudden you get surprised. So Liam, you talked at the beginning of the episode about this concept of betting on people, not on your product. And you can run a deal for six months with the wrong person. And the use case could be perfect at the organization, but you have the wrong person who can't get the deal done. And so let's use this exact situation. You said you met with someone six months ago and it didn't go anywhere. How do you navigate that dynamic of knowing you have the wrong person and finding another person without blowing up your initial POC? Yeah, I'll answer in reverse. One, you should never be single-threaded in any account. It doesn't matter if your ASP is 5K or 500K. If you are single-threaded, you're just taking the riskiest approach, right? <laughs> like you're climbing the mountain, no ropes, just by hand. So what you should always do is try to triangulate and get other people's point of view on the same team. 
generally, or just get everybody on the line so you could do it all at once and understand dynamics and even nonverbals that you can pick up on Zoom meetings or in person too. Like if somebody is not talking, it's really important to understand everybody sits. One, if you've been working with somebody for six months and they're not a champion, then I think you really need to go back to understanding how to test champions because two quarters of wasted time is almost irrecoverable for a lot of companies. But what you should do right at the beginning is understand, like you could just boil it down into three whys. I can usually understand if I do a deal review with a rep if they have a champion just by asking them like, okay, Nick, you're saying that Armand's your champion here. Like why does Armand as an individual have to do anything different at all with this workflow? And why does he have to do it now? Like in the next 45 days? And why are we the best solution? And then what happens if nothing changes? If you don't get solid answers to those questions that are quantifiable and tied to big business objectives, you don't have a champion. Like usually most deals that I will review with a lot of reps, I'd say 80% of them will fail that test and they immediately have to go back. So like if you don't pass go on the three whys, forget MedPick, forget Bant, forget everything else. Like you have to be able to nail those to understand if you have a champion because when you do, they're going to talk to you about the business implications of that pain, the implications on their team, the implications on their own job performance, the limitations on their career at the company if nothing changes, and why it's untenable for the business to keep the current state going forward. Once you start hearing that, then you have the beginnings of what I would consider a champion. So you just gave us three why questions that you might ask in like a pipeline review with a salesperson. And so let's say I'm a salesperson hearing that and you're like, oh gosh, like I don't know some of that from the contacts, the human beings that I'm talking to, but I feel like they could be a champion. And my question for you is how do I ask those questions to my prospect? The why do they even have to change? Why do they have to do it now? Why is it untenable to stay this way in the long term? Because those are pretty direct questions. I might be scared to ask that to a prospect. Yeah. And, and you know, I hear that a lot, Nick, from reps. If you're doing it from a genuine stance of curiosity and you've done the upfront effort to know about their business, it doesn't feel offensive. Blindly asking why or just like asking closed-ended one-sided questions can feel affrontive to a prospect. If I'm in a meeting with a prospect, and again, this is all genuine, like I will go have them take me back to why they started at this company. So I'll say, Nick, hey, it looks like you've worked at Envision for three years. I'm curious, did you find them or did they find you? Like, how did this whole relationship start with you coming over here? Now, all of a sudden, their mindset's going back to the beginning. It's a broad mindset. Now, they're talking about themselves. And then what I would ask right after that is, and it looks like before you're at Envision, you're at Venmo. Were you hired to do the same thing here? Or is your mandate at Envision different? And now they're getting me a little bit more specific. And they're talking to me about how they're measured, their KPIs, their goal, and their team. And then you can start asking them, like, how is it going? <laughs> You just told me that you're hired to basically completely redo the security architecture of this company. So how has that been going? Right. And then usually you're going to be able to latch on to one of their answers, starting with the three whys. Where typically the answer is like, well, you know, our API security is a big problem for us right now. It's like, oh, can you tell me more about that? Like, why is that the P0? Why does that make it to the top of the list? Like, and then you can start asking like, well, if you don't change that, does anybody care? Like, why, why is this a P0? If you don't do anything differently, what happens in six months? Does anybody at your company, aside from your team, even know that this is a problem? And then try to dig into the blast radius of a pain that you've just uncovered, right? A champion is going to be able to say, yeah, <laughs> like this is a big problem. This made it into the board meeting. And if I don't get it fixed, there's going to be a personal ramification to me and my team. And if I do get it fixed, it's the complete inverse of that. I look like a superhero and that'll make it into the board meeting. You know, non-champions are going to give you one word answers. They're not going to care. They're going to just say, just show me your demo. You're going to feel the difference there pretty quickly. Well, what you're doing is you're getting to organizational priorities so quickly 
by not asking them what they want to do, this, this, or that, the technical problems, starting with your product or anything like that, you're actually starting before they even join the company. And you're asking, why were you hired in the first place? What is the problem that the company was trying to solve by putting you in this position, right? And so that is a critical piece of discovery when you have a new executive brought on board or even a new champion brought on board. I'm curious to what extent or how does that change if you have a champion who's been on board with the organization, who's been there for five, six, seven years? I'd still start there, honestly. Like one, I would still say like, hey, you've had a good run at this company and I'm curious, like you've been here now for five years. If you take me back to the beginning, how did you find this opportunity? The other thing you can start to uncover with a long tenured executive is that company has probably reinvented itself every 18 months for five years. So then you have even more surface area to cover with curiosity where it's like, okay, well, you're brought in to redo the security architecture here five years ago. The company, from what I could see in my research, is only 100 people. Now it's 1,000. So what does the security surface area look like now? I have to imagine it's much larger. And like, has that initiative remained the same? Did you solve it and it's done or does it completely just become more complex as time has gone on? So now you can take the same questions, but then have them go through a five-year journey in an efficient manner. And I'm not going to ask them year by year. But I think it's even better if you have a longer tenured executive because then they can talk to you about how things have progressed at that company, which again, you should be able to understand if you're trying to help them with a specific workflow, what that's looked like over a longer time horizon. I mean, what I think is brilliant about what you're doing is there's a lot of salespeople that struggle with like the small talk or rapport building with somebody on a sales call. And I think most people are taught, oh, look into their background, understand, did they run track? Were they a wrestler? Where are they from? And you start the conversation on like, why are you even here at this company in the first place? And you get them almost re-excited about the reason that they came there, the vision for what that company is going to do. So you accomplish rapport building and you don't have to have a crummy conversation about the weather or the baseball game. In that conversation where you're understanding why were you brought on board, you've gone from 100 to 1,000, my guess is you're getting a sense of what their team looks like. And you said something earlier about if you're single-threaded, it's like climbing without a rope. And so let's say I'm on this call. The person's starting to allude to some of the other players on their team. You've already done some research into some of those people. How do you take that first conversation and get yourself multi-threaded where you're talking to more people from that first conversation? From the beginning, you want to prospect into multiple people, right? So I think when you think about tools like any sequencing tool, whether it's sales loft or outreach, like the best use case for automation to me is not to go blast 2,000 people and just hammer with volume. The best use case is like try to break people out by sequence, by title. So what I used to do is I'd have like a C-suite sequence, a VP sequence, a director sequence, and an IC sequence. And they're all extremely different. And I put 80% of my effort into that first email. And some of them would just be pure learning conversations and I'd just call it out. If I'm going after a bunch of ICs, but I know it's going to be a VP buyer or user even, I literally am just trying to learn. (laughs) And I will call that out where I'm like, hey, I'm new to this company. Based on everything I understand, I think you should be a beneficiary of what we do, but I'm never going to know if that's the case unless I talk to somebody there. And I promise you, I'm just trying to learn. I want to just understand how you handled this workflow today. And if I start selling you, just jump off the Zoom. But like, it's going to be 20 minutes of me asking you questions And then I probably am going to go away because I'm not going to actually try to sell you until I understand if it's going to be a mutual fit. The VP sequence is wildly different. So say I have that first meeting with the VP and now I want to get single threaded. I also think you have to let prospects understand, like, if you think there's a fit, tell them. (laughs) And now you can switch to selling, right? 
So don't Trojan horse it. I know that's like a phrase that gets thrown around a lot. Just like walk up to the gates and be like, hey, I think that we can actually help you with everything you just said. Here's how our process works, if you agree. We have a five-step sales process here. We're in step one. Step two would be meeting with a larger team. And 90% of my deals after step two will either stop or continue. So if you're willing to invest another hour with me and get people on the line, we're either going to not work together or we're going to try to pursue this in a significant way. So you try to get them to agree and then let them know where the finish line is always so that they're giving the time away because they understand the effort that's implied, right? It's not this like never ending sales process that's nebulous and they don't know what's next. And now you're asking for more team members. It's just like, we're going to cover this. You told me the security team would be the users. Let's invite them. And in 90 minutes, we're going to know if we're going to work together or not. Does that sound good? Like, is it something you think makes sense for next steps? And then you can have them pulled in. If they don't agree to that, I'm still already prospecting into their team. You're covering your bases on both sides. Prospect into the team concurrently. And then when you have conversations, try to rally people if it's going well. Liam, what you're talking about is the essence of playing the longer game and not just trying to pitch off the bat. Because it always blew my mind. I've worked with a small book before. But there are some reps who work with a book of five to 10 accounts. And it's truly mind boggling to me that you can work with five to 10 accounts and somehow hit a $3 million quota at times. And so what you're doing is instead of burning all your capital by blasting people with problems you can solve and products you can solve is you're leading with, hey, I'm the rep here. I'm the new guy here, and I'm trying to learn about your business to see if I can be helpful, right? To what extent is that different when you're dealing with an existing customer who might be warm, right? Versus is that your approach when you're just straight cold and you don't know anyone as well? What I would do with an existing customer, like let's say I come in and I have an install base, right? And I think every given year for that, any rep at this company, I'm going to close 30% of my number off of install upsells or cross-sells. What I would do is I'd, again, do the same stratification we talked about based on use cases. So, okay, I have 20 accounts that are going to renew this year. I'm going to stack rank them red, yellow, green, or one through 20 on like where I think there's more propensity to buy. And then I need to go get data either in Salesforce or directly from my CS team and understand the current state of all of those companies. This is usually what reps don't do for what it's worth. Like this upfront effort of going to uncover the history of an account before you got there or how it's been going since your first deal. And then really coming up with a new hypothesis with more data before you go out to talk to them again, right? So I would take an extremely similar approach. Now I'm not going to go ask them, maybe tell me about how you came to this company if I've worked with them before. But what I would say is just like, let's talk about the use case. When we started this conversation six months ago and we first sold into you guys and partnered with you, our goal was X, Y, Z. And it sounds like in terms of progress against that, we are here. 100%, 30%. So just re-leveling them back to what we had already agreed upon. So instead of their beginning of employment, it's the beginning of when I started working with them. You became a champion for this product because we were going to give you the ability to get faster speed to market for your product. And it sounds like we achieved that. Or maybe we didn't, and I need to go save this thing and avoid some churn on my end. So I would do a similar motion, but just take them back to what we originally agreed that we wanted to achieve and then understand how far or close are we from that. And then introduce anything I'm trying to upsell them with or just saving the account in general. So I want to talk about a somewhat nuanced or unique situation that happens more often than you would think, which is you're talking about this concept of 
going all the way back to when they were first hired. And you're trying to get the why behind the organization of when they were first hired or if they were hired recently, et cetera. One thing that I oftentimes find is you can get executives who've been around organizations at bigger companies for upwards of five, 10 plus years. And those people, sometimes they're still chipper and they want to make things move. But other times those are actually the biggest blockers because they have the most political capital and they've been there for five to 10 years and they think they know how to do everything the same way they've always been doing it and they don't want to move. And so let's say I'm stuck with a first point of entry and it might be a senior leader who's been at the company for five, 10 years. How do you navigate that dynamic of a company that has an old guard that is less willing to be open to change? So in this hypothetical, I wouldn't start there. This is even before, right? I, this person could be a change agent or maybe not, but let's say I go on LinkedIn and I'm like, hey, after all my research, I think this woman's the buyer. She's been there for 15 years. I'm just not going to start there just because there could be a sunk cost fallacy or there could be, like you said, some baggage with such a long tenure of like, I don't want to rock the boat. We're in weird macroeconomic times. I Salespeople call me all the time. Like, I'm going to prospect wildly underneath that individual to the teams that report into her that are going to have an impact on her team. And then the minute I'm ready to talk to her is when I already have a data-driven, proof-based hypothesis as to why she should do anything. So I'm not going to go in and just try to blindly do discovery questions against such a high-level, long-tenured executive. I'm going to ask them after I've worked with their team to get their opinion on this hypothesis. Because when you take that standpoint, like you don't have to hear the answers you want to have a good conversation. If you get that hypothesis and you put it in front of that executive and they're giving you really concrete answers as to why they, are, they cannot buy right now, great. <laughs> now you have proof to go back to your management team with and say like, look, here's the gong call recording. Like you can hear it yourself. <laughs> we need to punt this thing to Q4 or Q1 of next year. It's just not worth any more time right now. So I think you build that body of work and you can have a much more productive conversation with executives when you have proof as opposed to like, I mean, it gets me a little nauseous to think about going to an executive. It's like, hey, how do you handle security here at uh, eBay? Most of them would just hang up like immediately. And they'd be justifiable to do that. Well, Liam, one of the things you were talking about earlier was when you are attempting to multi-thread, one of the things that you'll do with the customer is you will lay out or almost foreshadow, hey, here's what the buying process looks like. You said, all right, we have a five-step selling process. We're in step one now. Here's what steps two, three, four, and five look like. And what do you do when the customer says, hey, 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 that's not how we do things here. We actually have a 17-step a buying process. You're going to do one-on-one -on -one demos with all of the end users. Or, you know, they throw stuff at you that is dramatically different than how you typically do things. I don't imagine you're so rigid and say, no deal, sorry, we're not talking to you at all. But I don't imagine that you totally cede control over to you just go blindly through the rest of these demos without knowing how you're going to end up. So what do you do when the customer disagrees with that five-step or whatever process you laid out? Yeah, you never want to cede control. But the first thing I would do, Nick, is I would say to myself, like, hey, this might be the beginnings of the champion because they at least have an understanding of how software gets purchased at their company. You asked me earlier about champion qualifying questions. If they can name the 17-step buying process and they're not in procurement, they've done this before. Right. So I'm like, hmm, okay, this is interesting. Like, and then I may ask them like, you know, that's interesting that it's so long. Like what was the last piece of software you took through this process and how did it go? And what was the worst part? Are there parts of this process that you think take too long? 
So then I may just reflect right back on what they just told me because usually if we're having a value-based conversation, people are trying to do things quickly to save time or they're trying to save reputation or money or anything else. So what I'll say is like, hey, if it's 17 steps, have you ever compressed this before with another vendor? Or has it never been compressed before? And would you see a reason that we wouldn't want to compress this if possible just to make it more efficient? Just given how busy you and your team are, like, I don't want to waste time. But if you're telling me that this is the only way deals have ever gotten done in your company before, I'm not going to be deaf eared to that. It's almost a polite indifference of pushing back and being curious now about why that process is so long and just dig into their experience with it. Do they really understand it? Are they reading off of a PDF that somebody gave them that they pinned to their wall? But that's what I would do is I'd push back on them just to understand, do they really know this process? Have they been through it before? And has it ever been compressed? And then I would probably pivot from there based on whatever they replied. Well, what I love is oftentimes what we've talked about on past episodes is find a champion, get a joint execution plan, and like hope that they can bring you throughout the organization the right way. And what you're doing is extremely different is you're saying, no, I know the process of how I need to get a deal done. And so what that means is if I book a meeting while I'm prospecting with one person, I'm not going to stop prospecting because I know how a deal needs to be run. And it's my job to educate them on how they need to get in line. And so my final question is actually going back to that motion to power. You've talked about you have to be multi-threaded into an account. And let's say that you have a couple of different folks across the org that you've met with in parallel. And you mentioned that you want to be extremely buttoned up when you go to power because you want to have a point of view, a data-driven hypothesis that you vetted with those different folks in the organization. How are you using those people who you've met with earlier in your sales cycle in that conversation with power? Are you including them? Are you having them send a one-off note voicing their support? How are you using those conversations and specifically those people as you approach power? Yeah, it's a great one. One, if any of those individuals have influence or authority, I'd want them to broker that conversation. There's nothing stronger than somebody introducing you to a potential EB from inside that company and them justifying why the conversation is worth taking. So one, that's the ideal scenario. But let's say on the individual contributor team below that person, I've gotten some really good information. I'm a huge fan of just having slides that could be quotes from individuals. Even if they ask for it to be anonymized, that's okay. But I could just say like member of a security engineering team, here's a direct quote, you know, that's probably painful for that person in power to look at about their current process or vendor solution. I will do clips from gong meetings because what I want to be able to do is I want to be able to take them through this live, ideally with a potential or a current champion on that call. But I also want them to be able to consume this async without me and have just as much impact. And I think that's another area where reps fall short. I always held my teams to a standard of, If we send this proposal over to a CFO, could they just read it and say, I should sign this because I understand the implications. I see the proof from my own team here. I see our business reflected back at me. Like, and this is what I'm talking to the board about. So if I have the beginnings of a mutual close plan or a deck that I'm going to go present to an executive, I love having gong call snippets with some context around them. I love having quotes. The entire slide may just be like a big quote if it's a big pain statement that speaks to the implications of what we're trying to solve. And then if I can get the individual on there as well, live, perfect. But that's typically what I would do is like, you've had a hypothesis and now you have all of this evidence. And then you're just trying to mold the two and see how accurate you were. And then usually the back end of that deck is things that I still don't understand that this person would be uniquely qualified to help me understand. So you can even prospect into executives that way if you haven't cracked into it yet, where it's like, look, this is my entire thesis so far and how I can help your company. (laughs) 
And the questions that I think you're uniquely qualified to answer or give me some context on are in the back and there's only three of them. And like, I'd love to just ask you those three questions if you'd ever be up for that. So you're doing a lot of the work for them. If I could just hammer on that for a second, this is one of the most powerful things I think you could do in any sale. Any of you could give me a product right now from cheese to software. And I could go on LinkedIn and I could tell you probably with an 80% accuracy exactly how they're going to buy and who's involved. Usually there's only like two or three legal people or there's at least always a head of legal. There's usually a head of security. You can usually find a procurement person on LinkedIn. If you're going after the DevOps team or like an engineering infrastructure team, you can find all those people on LinkedIn, stack rank them by seniority, and you can build a power chart of how you think deals get done here. And then when you're in a conversation with a prospect, show them that work and then ask like, hey, how off am I on this? Like I took a stab at how I think this is going to go in your organization and I just flighted it out. Is this like completely wrong? Did I waste two hours? Most people will one, really appreciate that level of effort. And two, they'll just start correcting you because you're not talking at each other. Now you've introduced this third party, which is a slide. And people love to correct things on slides about their own business. Actually, no, she wouldn't be involved or he'd be here or this would be this other legal person. You're like, okay, great. That's super helpful. Thank you. But it's that effort up front that can get all of these deals done. Like you can almost theorize and visualize selling into a company before you've ever met with anybody there. And it's just a much better place to spend time than like stumbling over yourself through an organization and wasting a bunch of cycles. Well, Liam, we are running out of time. And so we got to move ourselves to our final question for you here. And the last question is this. We've talked about a lot of really great things salespeople should be doing. The last question is about a shouldn't. And so the last question is, what's one bad habit you see a lot of salespeople exhibiting that you think they need to break because it's hurting them more than it helps? I just mentioned it before too. I call it the concept of going in blind. Like You can't go in with a blindfold armed with your product demo and 10 discovery questions and then just run through every company in your patch. And I feel like that's what the prospect experience is, unfortunately, for a lot of people out there, which is why I think you see some of these vehement posts on LinkedIn, again, salespeople, because they're like, this is horrific. This isn't a value-based anything. So put in the effort and then just ask from a genuine standpoint of curiosity. You can't fake that experience for the prospect. And if you actually give a shit about their business, they're going to feel that and appreciate that as opposed to somebody who is like selling off of the bat, which people typically have an allergic reaction to. Beautiful. Well, Liam, thank you for joining us. Everybody stick around for a 60-second recap coming up soon. Today's tactic to triple your connect rate is brought to you by RocketReach, who provides data that lets you reach out to the right person at the right account at the right time. Every time you're reaching out to an account, pull down the contacts again. Yes, I know it sucks, but the average tech tenure is two years, which means 50% of the workforce turns over every year. So look up the account, pull anyone who was hired, and scratch anyone who was left. And one way you can pull verified and accurate data is with RocketReach. So if you like this, check out their toolkit on eight ways to triple your cold call connects in the show notes. Here's my secret to being a sales superhuman. It's auto reminders for everything. If I expect any reply from a prospect, I press command H and superhuman pops it right back into my inbox if I don't get a reply in two days. That means if you handle an objection, if you suggest times for a meeting, or if you ask for cuts back on red lines, always create a two-day reminder task and assume they will not reply. So if you want to follow up on time every time, you can get a free month of superhuman by checking it out in the show notes.
This actionable competitive tactic from Clue is the trap question. Steer discovery toward the winning zone. If we're competing with a podcast that has no newsletter or webinar series, we might ask a trap question like, how do you figure out if those podcast listeners are making their way to your mailing list? And when you're in a head-to-head, there's no better way to prepare for your next competitive battle than with our trap questions and battle card templates from our friends at Clue. The link's in the show notes. Your top four takeaways from this episode with Liam Mulcahy include, number one, you can start discovery not with what the person wants to do today, but actually ask them why were they hired in the first place? And that way you can find the intent of the organization. Number two, if you suspect someone is going to be a blocker later on in the deal cycle, don't wait for that person to show up on your front door. Bring that up before it happens with your champion. Number three, don't stay single-threaded in accounts. This one sounds obvious, but once you book a meeting, keep booking meetings with other people on the account until you know you have the right champion who is shopping you around. And lastly, number four, if you're being introduced to power, share the hypothesis that you have, but then introduce a couple of things that only they are uniquely positioned to answer and use that to expand upon the discovery that you've already done. Nick, how can people help us out here? You are making a grave error this year if you just decide to work your territory without a plan. And luckily, our buddy Liam has shared an account planning, territory planning worksheet with us that you can get at the link in the show notes. My recommendation is go download that thing, spend a little bit of time working on it, an hour or so of work on that upfront will pay massive dividends throughout the year. And then when you make President's Club this year, send me and Liam a note and say, hey, that worksheet I downloaded actually got me sent to President's Club. And you know what? If you want to share any of your commission with Nick, I would gladly take some. Thanks for listening. We'll see you all next week on 30 Minutes to President's Club. Today's tip to optimize your sales day is brought to you by Boomerang. Obsessive checking of your inbox is a total waste of time and brain power. Instead, commit to checking your inbox and responding to email at set times throughout the day. I'm a fan of Boomerang's pause inbox function to keep myself from getting distracted by my inbox. Now, we documented our best templates and tools to help you optimize your sales day with our friends at Boomerang, and you can get that for free at the link in the show notes. This week's actionable prospecting tactic is from Sixth Sense, who shows you the prospects who are most likely to buy so you can get more meetings with fewer activities. Personalizing cold emails requires you to only change the first paragraph in a trigger template. All you have to do is tie the research to the problem you solve in paragraph one, and then switch that out while you leave paragraphs two and three, your solution and call to action, exactly the same. And so we are giving you six of these trigger templates with our partners at Sixth Sense. The link is in the show notes.